All right, welcome to the second episode of Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. Uh, this is Bill Connolly here with Stephen Godfrey hanging out in a hotel. Well, he's hanging out in a hotel room. I'm not. Um, we, well, we have one ma- major topic to cover today, and then we'll, we'll see where it goes. So, so Godfrey, tell, tell us what happens when a story falls apart. Oh, just like that. Yeah, um, just like that. I, no, so, we have a big, um, massive, insane, thanks to my co-host preview up at SB Nation right now, the college football preview, which you should just click on. And then, um, I guess just even when you're not reading it, just kind of move your fingers up and down scrolling. Um, that way it, it, it tricks our ad servers um, into thinking <laughs> that people are engaged at every moment of the day in college football, which obviously should be the norm anyway. Um, so Bill wrote uh, a bunch of stuff, We can, and we're going to get into that in a second because I have some questions, and um, I should probably pull it up as we talk about it because I'm well prepared for this program and don't have anything going on at the moment. Um, I had a story. Um, about Baylor and TCU. So Bill and myself, and I apologize for the points at which this will get to inside baseball, but I mean, I feel like, and I've talked to my editors, this is something we should talk about because it's something that everyone in college football is talking about. Um, so we meet every year um, in the dead of the off season, which was, what was that, Bill, March? Uh, April, I think. In April, okay, in Atlanta this year. Um, so we met in Atlanta. We mapped out all the things that we wanted to do in the off season and ideas for the for the actual season. We try to stay loose because God knows what's going to happen in the sport. Uh, we don't. And uh, among the preseason topics was Baylor and TCU, which you know, as as Bill can tell you in his previews, um, you know, huge game last year, engaging, exciting, um, sort of the toast of the Big Twelve. Uh, two untraditional programs. One wasn't even in the Big Twelve a couple years ago. And we set about doing a Baylor TCU piece, which is a little unlike what we do at SB Nation because, um, gosh, Bill, what, I would say every single outlet out there has some sort of Baylor and TCU coverage this offseason. Is that fair to say? <laughs> yeah, just about. So what we, uh, what we focused on was the non-traditional aspect. Um, two private Christian colleges in Texas. One survived the initial uh, conference realignment in 1995 when the Southwest Conference and the Big 8 folded into the Big 12. That was Baylor. Um, most people think it was because of Ann Richards, who was the governor. She was um, she's governor at the time, and she was also a Baylor alumnus. And then TCU didn't make the cut because they were pretty bad at the time, and their facility sucked. And this is the short, abbreviated version of a 6,000-word <laughs> article. So they go their separate ways, um, and Baylor becomes sort of the doormat of the Big 12. Um, it coincides with the Patrick Dennehy murder, the Dave Bliss scandal. Baylor as a brand suffers tremendously, and there's just really no hope, no interest. Uh, a series of bad coaching hires, um, including uh, actually this will be the second week in a row we've talked about <laughs> Steele. So he was um, a head coach there as well. And then simultaneously, TCU makes probably the best coaching hire or one of the best coaching hires of the last 20 years when um, – one of the provosts on campus, stay with me, Bill. I don't want to just read the whole story out. One of the provosts on campus, one day he decides he's going to start lifting weights, as one does when they're a provost in their 50s or 60s. So he goes down to the one weight room that was on TCU's campus at the time. And this is 1999, 2000, I think. And he starts lifting weights. He starts talking to football players. And they basically what he finds out was the head coach at the time, Dennis Francione, was, was very much a hands-off executive type you know, delegated a lot, was not the guy who was really running the show on, on, you know, a micro level. And the defensive coordinator guy named Gary Patterson was the guy who oversaw off season conditioning, had helped design the weight program, 
had engaged the players personally, was dealing with academic issues. So the provost thinks, man, we've, we've got like the real head coach here. Now keep in mind, if you can flash back, if you're old enough, Dennis Francione, hot coaching name. Oh, man. Yeah, like this is how long we're talking. So this is before the sad face meme of the, was it 77 to nothing lost Oklahoma? <laughs> yeah. Um, this was Dennis Francione, red hot coaching name. Um, Franchione goes to Alabama. TCU doesn't fight it. Uh, one, because they couldn't fight it uh, financially. And they promote Patterson. He's been there ever since. So two programs with opposite problems. Flash forward, they figure out a way to solve those problems. Spoiler alert. They're really good now. Uh, um, I'm not going to keep all the other stuff. Or I'm not going to kind of go through all the other stuff in the story. Um, but the reason why I'm saying all this is to kind of give you guys a gist of what the story is about. It's about the programs and the culture and what it's like to be better than Texas when you spend your whole life hating Texas. I'm talking about the University of Texas. And I don't know, just um, as I kind of ramble here for a second, it, it's the way Bryles changed offenses, the way that uh, Patterson changed defenses after those offenses were changing. A lot of what Bryles did at Baylor kind of helped color what happened in, I think, I think he, what, what he brought from the high school level up through Houston and eventually to Waco kind of works in tandem with what Leach was doing in Lubbock and, and Bryles was on Leach's staff. That was the first jump he made from, from his high school days. He was the, I want to say running, I think running backs coach for, for Leach and uh, everything I'm telling you right now is a football story with very football um, stakes and very football um, uh, context. And so flash forward, we're, we're done with the story. I spent some time in Fort Worth and Waco. I talked to these great, crazy boosters on both sides. And, you know, they kind of, the two schools deny their, their rivalry, which is very real. And the coaches aren't particularly fond of one another from, from various incidents in the past. And they're aggressively recruiting against one another. They're about an hour and a half drive away on I-35. Um, it just it, it's a fun story because you see these two schools with so much in common just vehemently denying their interest in even being one another's rival and it's a very texas thing um which i i, I believe that the schools in texas red river and you get away from a&m texas all of those schools tcu smu baylor you know tech hell even i guess maybe even utah they, they it's more about winning the state of texas and beating all those teams it's not really about you know, the more, like, traditional Michigan-Ohio State or, like, SEC style, like, we've got these one groups of SOBs. And so that was a story. It's, I, I liked it. It was all right. You know, it's everybody did a TCU and Baylor story. This wasn't – this isn't the, the passion project that was going to define me, but it's my job. Um, we sort of come to see what's – what's happened to Baylor in the last week and a half, um, everything that's gone on with Bryles and the decision was made the last Friday into Saturday to pull the story. And so that's, so we're up to speed there. Um, I would, I would say that if I was the editor and not the writer of the story, I would understand. And and I, I still understand because we wrote and we put a lot of time and investment into a great football story. Um, and it ended up being a football story that would sit on, it was supposed to come out, what, this Tuesday? Yeah. Was it Tuesday? Yeah. Um, and uh, that story sits in contrast to what's going on right now with um, multiple, you know, multiple investigations. One trial, one previous investigation into a, a football player's um, alleged and now convicted sexual assault of multiple women. 
it just didn't sit right. You know, I, I, I'm doing a poor man's job of rationalizing this right now. And believe me, you know, when you, when you work your butt off for, you know, a couple of weeks and, and check phone calls and track down people and write 5,000 words, you, you don't want it to disappear. And uh, it hasn't disappeared. Uh, definitely. And that's one of the things I'll actually open the forum to the show is what should we do with this thing and when should we do it? Um, but it's just not, it's not in the preview, which sucks because we should be talking about that, but we should also be talking about everything else that's in our super fantastic, um, reason that we all get to pay our mortgages college football preview. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been really just, I, and I can say this because I wasn't very directly involved with much of it, but I've been really excited about, or not excited, terrible word, um, pleased with, impressed with the way we've tried to go about covering it, um, over these last few days and, and not necessarily this, you know, taking down the story part of the, of the equation, but just trying to remain measured about what we know and what we still need to know instead of, I mean, it feels really, really good to, to jump in on, you know, somebody should have known something, somebody must pay, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's, it's so rarely that easy. And um, I, I like that we have managed to keep on kind of an ongoing you know, as new information trickles out, report on it, but don't, there, there was just no need for everybody to go in and, you know, you know, with both feet off the, off the high dive on Friday, uh, to, to race to say who could be the most outraged. And, um, it's, it's tough because there's not a lot that anyone can agree on right now outside of the core moral stakes that are involved. And, that seems simple when you say, hey, it, it, this is obviously, uh, I think everyone can agree that sexual assault amongst it's on campus. Is the basis. I don't think anyone would debate that. I don't think anyone would debate that um, what this individual, uh, Sam, and I'm going to butcher this because both Bill and I write for a living and we don't pronounce, but it's, I believe it's Ukawaku. That's that's kind of how I was hearing it in my own head. Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, for the fact that we're having a slightly serious conversation, I'm just going to call him Sam, because I would hate to just butcher it the entire time. But the fact Sam is um, is is now a convicted felon, and you know, guilty. Uh, that's not what we're here to argue. Obviously, it's who knew what when, and the plausible deniability of the statements that were issued not only by Art Briles but obviously Chris Peterson. And now, as this as this story sort of unfolds itself, uh, we hear from Will Muschamp, who had connections. Um, was it Brent Peace? Yeah, yeah he, Brent Peace came over from Peterson's staff to be his OC one year, and they had considered looking at him as a transfer. And said uh, Muschamp said, you know, ultimately we we passed on him. Um, it's hard. It's hard to talk of a program out of virtually nothing, you know, out of a Power Five doormat by the individual who is being questioned here or criticized or, or debated. And we're never going. The worst part about the situation is there are umpteen hot takes, and I'm not trying to refute anybody's hot take, and I'm not trying to encourage anybody's hot take. But we're not going to know what actually happened on that phone call in question between Bryles and, and Peterson over the transfer of, um, of, over this player. So I don't know what we do from here <laughs> in terms of covering Baylor. I mean, yeah. this, this is going to cast a pall. Definitely. I'm, um, working on a story that I can talk about next week. And, uh, as part of that story, it involves the sports media. And, you know, I just spent today talking about this exact subject with some very, um, notable people in college football media and, it's not going to go away anytime soon. It has changed the entire tenor of the conversation. 
about Brian, um, yeah. and I don't know how we're going to definitively arrive at what we feel will be an answer. So as far as the story goes, we're going to wait. Um, yeah. we, might, we might wait a week. We might wait three months. Um, it's not ideal, but I just didn't want to be the guy who put out a super cool football story in the shadow of a rape scandal. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I think as we record this on Wednesday afternoon, it's, I think the shift is finally taking place that I wish would have taken a place a few days ago and that the, the major issues I've got with anything Baylor's done has to do with Title IX and the way they handled um, the, the, the woman in question here. Uh, not whether he was brought to campus. We, maybe we find out some damning piece of info about that, but the, the, the part that appalled me when first reading the story was that they didn't really take care of her at all. They didn't help her out very much at all. And that's, that's awful. Um, I know a lot of schools are struggling with Title IX interpretations and whatnot. And my, you know, I'm, I'm a Mizzou guy. My, my school had some uh, Title IX interpretation issues not that far ago. And um, I, I, you, you, you learn that it's very tricky to figure out exactly what you have to do and when and who you should do it with. But this seems, I mean, from a pure uh, common sense standpoint, it feels like they probably, uh, well, I'm not going to go down the they should have done something road because that's what I was just uh, complaining about. But that's that's where I've I've found my own um, issues with with everything that's happened. So I think the issue is that we we all agree that someone should have done something. We're not exactly sure when and because we don't know exactly who knew what. And that's a bigger problem to talk about. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. I asked Mark Rick about this one time about transfers and um, standards policies. You know, George has made fun of a lot on the internet. There's a lot of, you know, the Mark Rick just lost control meme and that kind of stuff about they have a, a much, uh, much more serious uh, discipline policy in place for things like minor drug offenses, like marijuana possession. Um, and he said, look, it's just, it's, we're never all going to agree on something. So it's, it, you're, it's not like you're going to have a waiver wire or trade policy <laughs> in terms of transfers in, in the Power Five. That's just never going to happen. They're never all going to agree on something. So this is always going to exist. I will say this. Um, in the course of this story, I took a vacation. And on that vacation, I was forced to take a vacation, I promise. <laughs> um, in, the, in the course of that vacation, I read cover to cover Art Browse's book, uh, Beating Goliath, because I was just sort of trying to figure out exactly what was sort of fact and fiction about this this guy who's this, you know, bootstraps tale from Texas high school football who's endured a lot of tragedy. Having read that book, Bill, I can say that it, it 200% does not surprise me that he took this kid. Yeah. I mean, he talks, he talks about it at, at great length about, you know, we can talk just like apropos of any one particular program that, you know, coaches that are trying to win at the highest level are going to are going to take the benefit of the doubt on a transfer. That's almost universal. Um, but Bryles especially, you know, he talks about um, Josh Gordon. I mean, I think there's basically a whole chapter yeah. devoted to sort of his philosophy of like almost parenting as a coach and what he was told when Josh Gordon came into the program and then obviously they had to let him go. His was a drug-related offense or possession, I think. Um, possession, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is not the same as, as a sexual as a as a what looks to be I guess multiple sexual assault repeat offender, but Bryles is going to take a, a character flyer because he feels like he hasn't put hands on them yet, and then therefore he, as a Christian man, this is something he talks about at length. As a Christian man, he feels like it's his duty to help sort of intercede in that young person's life. Well, another that part sounds is- like semantics to some people, but I mean. 
you read it literally, that's the, understandable, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and the other part is we love the redemption stories when they work. You know, we love when a guy turns everything around and, and, and becomes like an easy to root for figure. It's just that, I mean, when, when you try to succeed in that regard, you're going to fail too. And so um, obviously you've got to have standards or somebody within who, who is uh, above you needs to have a certain level of standard. And, and, and one thing we should also mention here is that Sam, um, you know, for all the, 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 the guidelines the SEC and the Big 12 are trying to put into place right now about, you know, um, guys with, with bad offenses on the record can't transfer, he, he probably still would have been allowed to transfer because, you know, on the, on the official record that Boise State had, he, he wasn't kicked off the team for any sort of abuse. So, uh, you know, officially on the document. So if you want to assign guilt, there's probably no box that shouldn't be checked. Right. If you're in, if you're in the assigning guilt uh, business, you feel like with your outrage on social media or what have you or blog or whatever, every single person in this story, other than the sexual assault victims themselves, in my opinion, shares some of the blame. So that would be the coaches at, at, at every school he interacted with the player himself and the administrators at at these schools because the documentation leaving with him leaving Boise to me is, is, is far too vague. Yeah. If if this person had had a a threatening, you know, history of sexual assault and that needs to be imparted in print, you know, uh, then obviously the blame would shift or not shift, but also sort of transition down to Waco and all the administrators there. One of the things that was in this, in the story I wrote, is that everything that Baylor is right now in the whole year of the bear that happened a couple of years ago where they were in the College World Series, they were uh, – Robert Griffin wins the Heisman. They go to a bowl game, and then both the men's and women's basketball teams, I think – I don't know if they made the Final Four, the Elite Eight. I mean, they called it – they sort of branded it as the year of the bear where they had turned everything around and made inroads in every major revenue sport and and changed their entire culture from back in the Dave Bliss era of the scandal. That was all built out of, uh, out of this, this type of incident. And for those of you who don't know, Dave Bliss was a basketball coach, and one player, one of his players, murdered another. <laughs> and then Bliss and uh, and other administrators um, made efforts to cover that up and to change the character of the deceased. Um, he was found out because he was recorded, and and it became a, a scandal that that really almost knocked Baylor out of you know Division One athletics. A lot of people that, that I talked to down there thought, well, that that's it. That's it. It's hard. It's hard enough to justify a Division One uh, Big Twelve team being in Waco, you know, just up the road from Austin, where there's nothing going on. This is just going to kill us. But they survived and persevered through a philosophy of openness through a philosophy of, of character and principle, which all sound like marketing buzzwords because they are. And then this happens. Yeah. So th- that was another sort of sticking point in, in, in the story, not to completely harp on just my stuff, but it's really hard to tell that story and not have, and not have this incident potentially strip all that to the ground. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, you know, to, to take it to a slightly lighter place, I'll say this before we move on. Cause I'm, you know, nothing I write is going to change. I think the college football fans' IQ on on things. I try and better illustrate, you know, topics of interest. The big non-sex assault question I, I got during the story, and what I wanted to answer was how valid and real are Baylor and, and TCU as football teams, provided that Bryle stays, and provided that they don't see some sort of sanction, be it self-imposed or from the NCAA. Um, 
we're still talking about the same two teams that I reported on in July and early August. Right. I'm going to ask you the same question, but my answer is they're not going anywhere. And, and before Bill gets into the logistics of it, they are so stupid rich right now. <laughs> they are, as, as, as my dear old man says, richer than four foot up a bull's ass. And, and just dumb money is pouring into both of those programs because it's Texas. Yeah. Those are two rich, they're small on my basis, but they were very, very moneyed. And for years, they weren't engaged. And when you get rich people to believe in your in their alma mater, and the fastest way to do that in Texas is by winning football games, they put real money into facilities and programs and, and, and you know um, permanent things like weight rooms and stadium seating and renovations of skyboxes and et cetera, or in Baylor's case, a whole, an entire new stadium. That doesn't go away. Yeah. You know, that becomes a job that if the, the next coach or the next guy that comes through, if one of those guys moves on, can use to their advantage. And also, there's a quote in there about from Chris Del Conte, the AD at TCU, says, hey, look, we could be the fourth best recruiting class in Texas every year. If we got the fourth best players in Texas, that means we would be getting, like, you know, players 75 to 100. And we would still have a top 10 class every year in the United States. That's a good point. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, in no, terms... What do you think? Do you, I mean, statistically and everything that you've done, I mean, you, you've seen both of these programs. I think they're, we could say they're at maturity as far as football teams. They don't seem to show any signs of like, well, one of these days, Texas is going to come back and smack them. Well, yeah, I mean, and part of that's on Texas, I guess. Um, but, you know, I mean, TCU's been around a while now. They, um, I, I realized that we didn't really take them seriously until about 2010, uh, when they when they beat Wisconsin in the Rose Bowl, that was you know where you know if there were a playoff, everybody was going to pick Wisconsin because Wisconsin was smoking hot and and TC just went out and beat them in the Rose Bowl. Um, but they went, I mean, they they won at least ten games in two thousand two, three, five, six, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and eleven. Uh, it, obviously in the Mountain West, uh, and then because of injuries and that weird drug scandal thing where a lot of guys got kicked off the team before I think 2012 and Casey Paul Hall's issues uh, where they, they suddenly didn't have a quarterback because uh, Trevon Boykin was too young. Um, they, they, tra- they were going to trail off in either the Big 12 or the Mountain West, but because of when it happened, it made it look like, oh, now they're, they're with the big boys. They're, they're, you know, they're flailing. Um, so, and I assume you heard that a lot too when you would do like. Oh yeah, I, I heard that a lot during your radio hits last year. Where oh, I tell you what, this is what happens when you move to the Power Five. TCU is going to learn what Colorado did, and and I always wanted to, <laughs> you know, you don't get the chance in two minutes of radio to, to like completely break that apart. But in no way, shape, or form is TCU similar to any program like like a Colorado that has transitioned conferences. Really, the conference had nothing to do with it. Right. No. And I mean, they, like I said, I mean, with injuries and, and just kind of, you know, bad personnel issues, um, that was going to happen regardless. But yeah, I, the whole thing about, you know, moving to a power conference or whatever, T- TCU and Baylor both and Utah before they had moved and BYU even like all you have to do is look at their record against major conference teams before they left in 2011. Um, you know, TCU lost that amazing 50 to 48 game to Baylor. They were still Mountain West, but they sure seemed to be able to hang with a 10 win Baylor team in Waco. Um, and then, you know, they, so they end up going 11 and two that year, but in 2010, they beat Oregon state, they crush Baylor, uh, they beat Wisconsin in the Rose bowl and, and going back, you know, in 09, they won at Clemson, Clemson won the, the division in the ACC. Now, I mean, ACC, but, uh, you know, ACC without a good Florida state, but still, uh, they went to Clemson and, and won. they, they whipped Virginia in Virginia, 
Uh, they they were just they were a proven program before they even set foot in the Big Twelve. So the, you know, it surprised me that they were able to go from four and eight to twelve and one. They were they were very unlucky in twenty thirteen from a stat from a numbers bounces et cetera standpoint, and they were very lucky last year. But the fact that they were good wasn't a surprise at all. They were good in two thousand eight, nine, ten, and eleven too. So um, and Baylor's let me put you on the, right, let me put you on the spot um, <laughs> because we're all about dispelling stupid myths and making you all smarter, wonderful fans. Sure. Um, intelligent, reasonable, and accepting human beings. <laughs> where where did that uh, narrative work, if at all? From if you look at the teams that 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 moved in radical realignment, the period that sort of started with the LHN and Nebraska move, that was sort of like the Franz Ferdinand moment. All the schools that have moved, is that true for anybody? I mean, off the top of my head, Colorado had really bad financial problems and terrible recruiting issues before they left the Big 12. Right. They were terrible in the Big 12 and they're terrible in the Pac-12. They're getting better. They're getting better. Mike McIntyre, I think, is actually good. They were unlucky last year. They should have won maybe a game or two more. Um, but, yeah, they, they, their status did not change going from one to the other. Um, you know, the, you know, A&M obviously has, has kind of fallen back a little bit since that first year. But that first year, they were probably the second-best team in the country. Uh, and they won a ton of games in the SEC. Missouri obviously uh, has had easier roads because they're in the SEC East, but they still won the East twice. So, you know, any of this whole getting called up to the big leagues kind of thing, which, first of all, I mean, it's an insult to the Big 12 to pretend like A&M and, and, and Missouri were making the same type of move that TCU did. But um, but no, I mean, it's it's silly. The, the separation in college football – that exists in terms of you know the Alabamas versus the you know the Utahs, for instance, has to do with depth and injuries, your ability to overcome bad luck. But in just in terms of you know being able to compete in, in a, over the course of a conference schedule in the Mountain West versus the Big Twelve, it's not that much different if you're good. And TCU was good; uh, they struggled for uh, you know a couple blinks there, and now they're good again. So. Um, you know, Baylor's actually the kind of the newbie when it comes to success because they've only had three 10 win seasons. Um, and, and, you know, in the big 12, obviously, and technically TCU's only had one, but, um, yeah, they're kind of newer to success than TCU is. And, um, I think what, what as long as Bryles is still Bryles, as long as this doesn't, like you said, as long as this doesn't cause any sort of punishment or sanctions or, or, you know, a sudden massive drop off in recruiting, which I don't really expect, honestly, um, they, the fact that they're, they're led by good coaches who don't seem to want to leave is a huge thing. Cause I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons the, the, the rich stay richer too, is they, is they take your coach when he succeeds and you have to continue to make like three times as many, um, good decisions to keep up. But if Bryles and Patterson are both in place and remain Bryles and Patterson, there's no reason for them to slip all that much. Now, if Texas gets its act together, they'll start taking some of those recruits and maybe top 15 seasons turn into top 20 seasons or something yep. like that. But they're, they're not simply good because Texas has forgotten how to play good football. They're, they're good because of the decisions they made and the coaches they hired. Texas will be good again because programs at that level will go with a nuclear option. You yeah. know, Alabama stumbled through an entire decade and then – sold the farm and found their success and saving you know, programs will at that size, at that height, you know, Notre Dame would have continued on had Brian Kelly not been the right fit. You just saw that at Michigan. So Texas is going to be good again, but you know, Oklahoma is going to be a national title contender again, maybe, maybe uh, or soon, uh, sooner than, Oh, pardon the pun, huh. Texas, but 
Um, now, as far as the transition meme goes, I don't really think that fits for anybody. I mean, we've had enough time now to dispel that for just about everybody. Um, you, is it harder to recruit if you're West Virginia and you're in the Big 12? Yeah, but, you know, West Virginia got really good recruiting Florida, and they're probably still going to be a force recruiting in Florida, especially with that offense. And that doesn't mean that Holgerson can't pull one or two guys out of Texas with his connections. Um, Utah, I think, is a great TBD in this argument. And honestly, I mean, we're, everybody kind of feels like they're on the upswing too. So, yeah, I mean, Utah, Utah struggled too. You know, they 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 won what thirty three games their last three years in the Mountain West, and they go eight and five in twenty eleven. Have a couple bad seasons before bouncing back last year. Maybe that is a case of a growing of a a learning curve uh, right there. But I mean, Hey, they did bounce back. They, they were rock solid last year. Um, and any, a lot of the issues they've been having is that they can't keep an assistant coach for, you know, reasons beyond my, I mean, you, you hear a lot of rumors about, you know, the athletic department or the 80 and Whittingham not getting along, or maybe Whittingham's hard to work with, whatever, whatever the reason is they they have struggled to keep a good continuous staff. And I think that has hurt them to some degree. Um, but that, for for all intents and purposes, that could have happened in the Mountain West too. It could have happened more because they wouldn't have been able to afford. Uh, you know, they they have more money to spend on coaches now. So, um, so yeah, I mean, maybe they're TBD. Maybe they're proof that there was a little bit of a learning curve there before they could kind of build the depth they needed. But they're pretty good now. So, and I'll just and before we move on, let me trans. I'll transpose that with a quote that I got from Patterson that I didn't use in the story. And it's, I think that's probably the intelligent answer to this issue. It's not about changing conferences. It's usually about the coaching talent you have. But I I would go back and say, hey, at the end of the day, if you are struggling to keep assistance because of there's rumored uh, budget problems or conflicts, that's a huge red flag. Okay. Patterson, I asked him, I said, you know, what you, I can't remember how I phrased it, but a general question essentially about the support. It's one of those situations where you want to say, hey, man, why didn't you take the Florida job? Because I heard someone wanted to give it to you. Or, hey, man, why didn't you take that job two years ago or that other one five years ago? Why did you stay at TCU? So what he said was compared to 18 years ago, to say that we built what we built, we've been able to pay for it all in three years. And what he means by that is that everything was paid for privately. So every (laughs) Ammon Carter Stadium is paid for. There's no debt on the university at all. It's completely in the black. He said, and that's all without getting a full cut of the Big 12 conference money because obviously they have to pay in as a transitioning member. And he says, hey, you know what? We've already got plans to change that, and we're not just going to sit on our hands. So the next time someone says, hey, Gary Patterson's a candidate for X, I would probably give them that quote in response as to why I think he stays at TCU because it's got recruiting. It's got support. It's got money and facilities. You're sitting in Texas. Why would – I mean – what job do you leave for? And the guy 20, went to K State. I mean, does someone beg him home if Snyder retires? I, I mean, maybe, but yeah, I mean, I think that there's the statue effect too. If he twenty years from now, they'll build a statue of him outside the stadium. And he is there everything? So, and same with Bryles. Assuming you know, well, let's let's rewind a week and a half and pretend the last week and a half hasn't happened, and you can say the same about Bryles. So, um, who's your who's your next statue guy? that you feel like in, in 10, 15 years when we talked about like that? Well, it's funny. Uh, you know, my, the, the first thought goes to Gary Pinkle because um, and, and it, it, because the, those conversations now float around, and it's hilarious. God, you, Homer. I know. Well, I'm not saying I, he should, but I'm saying that I've heard the conversations because, you know, I live where I live. Uh, and I find it hilarious because two years ago, 24 months ago, nobody, everybody thought he was done and should be done. And, you know. I had three assistant coaches in the Southeastern Conference tell me that he was – that that job is open 
and that they should go after Bobby Petrino. Uh, I had three people tell me that. Well, I mean, 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago to the day. I just wanted to ruin your day for a second. God. Well, 10 years ago to the day, you know, Missouri's losing 28 to 7 in the, not to the day, about nine years and nine months ago. Um, Missouri's losing 28 to 7 to South Carolina in the Independence Bowl, and there are people in like Missouri sports bars in St. Louis saying, clap, uh, chanting, Gary Barnett. Because we're all terrible and stupid. Um, that's we as in all fans, not Missouri fans. But um, anyway, so I, I, I stumbled across this great transition that I'm going to use because I have it, even though it doesn't really fit anymore and we've moved on. Transition. Um, transition. So Kevin Steele, since he's like the, the mascot of this podcast, apparently. Um, if he is known for any one thing at Baylor, it's the 100-yard fumble return they gave up to UNLV uh, when they were already winning and could have just run out the clock, but he wanted to, you know, prove a point and and win by uh, big, and they fumble and UNLV returns the uh, the fumble for a touchdown. Um, Specifically, six seconds left in the yes, game. Yes. Yes. Instead of um, kneeling on it, right? So right. UNLV has no timeouts. Correct. They're on the six yard line. The only way UNLV wins is if Baylor doesn't down the ball. Toss um, sweep right. Every. Uh, Pulling guard goes, running back, whose name escapes me at the moment, hits the goal line. I just really want to illustrate the madness of this play call. Running back hits the goal line. They're going to tack on that extra touchdown. They're going to teach this team about winning big. He fumbles the ball, and then he's returned 100 yards to end the game. Yep, that would be it. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the head coach of UNLV in that game, in his first game as UNLV head coach, John Ro- or second game as UNLV head coach, John Robinson. Uh, tight ends coach at that moment in time, Ken Niamatololo. Whoa. So you, so, so you see how the segue is coming together here? Hey, guess who I spoke to for my big coach profile this year? Uh, uh, other than Gary Pinkle, who we've already mentioned. Hey, I, I, we've already deconstructed the transition, so it's not as smooth, but I just want to applaud this. This is impressive. Yeah, and that was just purely. And did you know off the top of your head that, that Niamatololo was the tight ends coach at UNLV? Oh. During that play. Only because I spoke with him in the last month uh, for, for that coach's profile. Before that, I had no idea he coached it at, at UNLV or for anybody other than Paul Johnson uh, along the way. But that was his one stop uh, with, uh, outside of the, the Paul Johnson universe. Uh, he st- when Johnson became the head coach at Georgia Southern, um, Niamatololo became the um, – the offensive coordinator in Navy for Charlie Weatherby. Weatherby's a Fisher DeBerry option guy, and 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 Ken's a uh, Paul Johnson option guy. And they butted heads, and after the first year, their offense kind of fell apart. So, uh, so Weatherby fired him, and he ended up landing as a position coach under John Robinson for three years before going back to Navy to be Paul Johnson's guy. So there you go. There's your there's your um, you know six degrees of whoever John Ke- well of Kevin Steele. Um, and, and so now we can talk about our big, massive preview that was awesome. Bill, you robot. Yes. Uh, okay, so uh, – and that, that's the story I wanted to ask you about. Um, why did you uh, – I've been around coaches as they prep for games, and I'll actually be embedded with the staff in two weeks. Um, what was the goal here? Because this is a big kind of audacious thing. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of moving pieces on a seven-week schedule for coaches to install a game plan. So, so just – what the, the hell were you thinking? The idea was, you know, last year I did a big blueprint for a rebuild piece that I really, or anatomy blueprint for a rebuild um, that I really liked. You know, talked to six coaches at six different stages of a rebuild. And so I was thinking in the offseason, what could I do 
um, that, you know, that was kind of like a sequel to that. And so it started off as kind of a blueprint for a game plan thing. Only um, seven coaches aren't going to really fill you in on, um, you know, here, well, come to my office, I'll show you some film and what we're going to do if this happens. You know, that's, um, you know, I, I am not high enough up the totem pole yet <laughs> uh, for a piece like that. But then I realized as I was talking to a couple of them off the bat that this was a really, this is something that fans might not know a lot about. You know, what do coaches do which day of the week? Um, and how does a game plan come together? Even though I can't tell you specifically, uh, I can't break down the film study just yet. I'm working on that. Um, you know, and so the idea was was simple. You know, call call seven guys and, and see what we can do. Um, and I liked the result quite a bit. I got some head coaches. I got a couple of D coordinators who I've, who I'd spoken with before and I knew, you know, Bob Shoup was actually the first person I talked to because I, I could, I knew I'd be able to tell after talking to him whether the piece would work or not. And I think it, I think it did. Um, but yeah. Well, you got, now, why did you think that? Just, uh, I know, I know Bob, but I mean, why did you make him your barometer? Because I mean, he's, he would, I knew he would share a lot of pretty interesting details, a lot of nitty gritty details um, about kind of the, the, the week itself. And I could tell whether it was going to remain interesting, uh, talking about it to other coaches or whether it was going to be amazingly repetitive. Yeah. Um, and I think it was interesting. And so I got, yeah, I got Tom Herman. I got, um, I got to tie together the tales of Rich Rodriguez and Todd Graham who coached against each other in the 1993 NAIA title game, Glenville state versus, uh, East central university. Okay. Uh, of Oklahoma, by the way, um, I got a text from a friend of mine who read about um, what's his name. Tyler Jack was East Central's hero that day. Um, of course, yes, of course. of course, yeah. He rushed for um, 318 yards and four touchdowns. He's now an Oklahoma Highway Patrolman. But a friend of mine from where I grew up in Weatherford, Oklahoma, pointed out that five years before that game, Tyler Jack ripped up Weatherford in the state semifinals um, for Ada High School, where East Central is located. So you know, we're just tying worlds together here. But um, I'm but, sorry, this has suddenly become a John Mellencamp song. Keep going. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and the fact that he's now a highway patrolman ties into that too, I guess, uh, into that Mellencamp song. But, um, but anyway, it, yeah, from start to finish, you know, they, they, they tie up the last game. They, they evaluate themselves. They spend most of Monday holed up in, you know, from 6 to 8 or 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, writing up the game plan. Tuesday, they communicate it. Wednesday, they start getting situational in their – uh, walkthroughs Thursday it's kind of situational and and you know pop quizzes and Friday's a walkthrough Saturday's the game and then you start all over again so um, it was it was an interesting learning experience and I hope people learn from it the yeah. thing that really jumped out at you because as I I mean as I as I read the piece and as I, I look at it now there are some seriously contrasting styles how did you go about picking the particular days um, in terms of like what coach would do, you know, was it like well, this guy does the best with Thursday? <laughs> um, some of it was easy and some of it was, you know, artistic license. Thursday had to be Gary Pinkle uh, because he talked about a lot about their, their Thursday checklist where they make all of their their planned spontaneity. They want to make every, every decision that you don't want to make in a stress situation on Saturday, they make it in a coach's meeting on Thursday. So, you know, are, what situations are we going to go for it? What are we going to run a fake and what kind and, and all those things. And they just get it all laid out so that on Saturday, they don't have to think they can just react and say, Oh, I guess now's the time for that fake kick that we were talking about. And, um, and so that had to be Thursday. I love that 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 Kenny Yamatololo did uh, gave his 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 coaches Friday mornings off 
um, because for to do honeydews because he wanted them to be nice and rested and stress free on Saturdays. Uh, so he had to be Friday. And Dude, in what world does doing honeydews on a Friday not make you stress? Sorry. Granted, uh, well, it's more like once talk. once they're done, you know that you won't have to, you won't you know you're not going to get in trouble uh, once it's up on. Once they're done on Friday, you know, you're not going to forget, like, oh, honey, I forgot to go to the bank. I'll do it next week. You know, so there's stress there that you can alleviate. I got you. Um, I knew that because of that ECU Glenville State story, Rodriguez and Graham had to be tied together. So, yeah, it was just, it was just fitting in a puzzle, basically. Once I decided on a few days, the other ones just kind of filled in. Um, if you want to say it, was there a coach out there that you really wanted you couldn't get? Um... Well, I mean, the the one that I did aim for immediately that, you know, because of other personal issues had to, you know, d- it didn't end up coming together. Jimbo, I think, would have been really good for this piece. Um, I re- I'm really excited about the guys I got, but I, one of the, when we, I was first kind of drawing up the list, Jimbo was near the top because I think he, he does some pretty interesting things, especially from a Saturday perspective. I think he manages games really well, uh, and it would be interesting to, to talk to him about that. So, I'm trying to think off the top of my head if there's one I would think of that. I mean, I've I've been embedded with Shoop as obviously as a DC under Franklin. Right. Um, trying to think if there's a, like if, if there's a dream schedule or, or a guy whose brain I would. I mean, this is so cliche now, but we're all going to be curious how Harbaugh does things. Oh man! And I know that we've already seen him do it at Stanford. But this is such a higher profile rebuild to the point where I think it's almost – I don't even know how you'll be able to compare his first two or three years in Palo Alto with what he's about to go through. So that's the one that jumps out right away. I think de- – I'm always in the, in, interested in demystifying things and, 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 and kind of killing the myth. And so there's a lot of urban questions I have. Um, I, I think ultimately, though, the king of the hill still has to be saving because of all the things that I've heard over the years from assistant coaches. There are – you, you've heard this all the time, you know, coaches like live in the office or coaches or, you know, we, we, we're sitting here just laughing about the fact that, that Nia Matanolo, you know, lets his coaches off on Friday for personal. Most coaches would like you to believe that their entire life is zero to 60 all day long, 24 hours a day, sleeping in their office, perpetually busy. I've been embedded with coaches where there is downtime. Yeah. You know, there's, there's time to sit around and kind of gossip. There's time to sit around and maybe, you know, you can be constructive or not. I mean, coaches are also – keep in mind, the way information flows in college football is assistant coaches talking to one another during the week. Right. So so there's plenty of time to text and gab and, I mean, the whole thing's a giant sewing circle in a church basement. I mean, seriously. I use that joke all the time. I think I've already used it. That's two episodes in a row. <laughs> but seriously, I mean, that that's – a reporter like me gets his information from an assistant who talked to a guy who knows a guy. So – that everything that I've been told about Saban is that time to kind of hang out idly or go back to your office or whatever, that doesn't exist. Every single minute of your day under Nick Saban is accounted for. And he is renowned for sort of popping into your office or, or sort of reinforcing that aspect of just like perpetual productivity. <laughs> we always frame that up in the media as like what that – like what's the impact on kids? Well, like the truth of the matter is – in college, they're not they're around the kids like two and a half hours a day. Yeah, you know, three and a half. I mean, tops. You know, you travel with them. It's the coaches who have to live with the guy. <laughs> you know, I, I would be fascinated to like if if I could do anything, I would be like Nick Saban's special teams coach for a day or for a week. Oh, 
and then I would retire. Yeah, I think that Snyder, Bill Snyder and, and Saban, you're basically, that is an all-intensive internship. Like, you're going to do it because you will learn so much, but you better leave pretty soon or otherwise you're going to grow to hate the coaching profession um, because it's so intensive. I will, and we need to wrap this up here, but I, I, one of the things Pinkle talked about, um, that, you know, he, he really tries to be as family-friendly as possible, and that's when you're a coach, that's only going to be so much. But um, he, he, were, he was talking about all the extra information you, you, you can get now as a coach in terms of the game analysts you hire and the, the way the film study is a, is a million times faster than it was in 1977 or whatever. And um, he said, you know, while that's more information, you still have to choose what work, the information that works best for you. Uh, you know, more, more data is just more data and you have to know what you're doing with it. But he said he, one of the things he tries to do with it is, is, you know, that allows him to maybe send coaches home about an hour or two early in a given day than maybe they used to be. And, um, you know, Nina Matalolo talking about how, you know, um, you know, if they're the fresher coaching staff on Saturday, that probably has bled over on the, into the team a little bit. So, um, you know, a million ways to, to coach a, a college football game, I guess. But anyway... All right. Well, we once again aimed for 30 minutes, went about 40-something, and um, that's, that's, that will always happen. Uh, but anyway, I hope we eventually loosened up after a, you know, a not very fun first 15 or 20 minutes or whatever, and, and we'll try to do one of these again, if not next week, then the week after. Absolutely. Um, until then, thanks for listening, and um, I promise the next thing I write you'll be able to read. <laughs> there you go. All right.